Today on episode number 309 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, David Rhodes joins me to speak about high flex learning. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Joining me on today's episode is a friend, a colleague, a... I don't even know where to go with this since we're living all this pandemic stuff together. It's David Rhodes. He's on the line with me already. I'm about to read his bio. He cannot wait for this to start. But let me just say welcome, David, because otherwise it feels weird to talk about you when you're right here. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to get the conversation going. David Rhodes has been teaching in the areas of leadership and educational technology for the last seven years. He enjoys helping faculty do what we do best by equipping us with solutions and best practices for our classroom. David has extensive experience in the area of online pedagogy and program development, non-traditional enrollment and support, instructional design and educational technology, David's background prior to working in higher education included teaching at the high school level, as well as 12 years of youth and young adult ministry. David is passionate about helping faculty maximize face-to-face and online learning opportunities so their students can gain the most benefit from their instruction. He believes that our goal as educators should be to facilitate learning in such a way that encourages and equips students to be passionate, lifelong learners. David, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you. Thank you again. I'm trying to decide. I guess we just start with where we met because we know each other pretty well. (laughs) (laughs) So you went to get your doctorate at a university out here in Southern California called Concordia University. And I teach there and have taught there since the inception of their doctorate in educational Leadership, I believe that's the name of the program. I hope so. So uh, five or six years ago was actually your professor there. And that's how we first met. And so um, fast forward now, we work together at Vanguard University right up the road from that institution. And we are both living our university's response to the pandemic. And so that's why I was joking about (laughs) you get really close, really fast. Not that we weren't already close, but I mean, this is a crisis and I feel like we're living it together. For sure. For sure. Yeah. So I want you to share the story though, because it really comes out in how you approach so much of what you do. Would you talk about yourself as a student? And in fact, there's there's documented evidence of what you were like as a student when you were young. <laughs> well, if we want to go back that far uh, to kind of what Bonnie is referring to is as a high school student, I was the worst student that probably a teacher could ever have. So much so that I was written up in a chicken soup for the soul teacher's tale book as the worst student that I've ever had. To, like a, a, this teacher is speaking about me. I just wasn't interested in, and what I was learning, I didn't, I didn't like being forced to go to school. Uh, and then it took me six years out of high school to try to figure out, okay, now I want to go to college because I wasn't able to go to college because my grades were not great. 
And that's an understatement. So then I went to an accelerated program to actually start working with youth. That's when, that's when that started. And then I got into that. And it was four hours a night, one night a week, eight weeks, kind of that type of a program. And then I got into my master's degree and that was completely online. And then in my doctorate, it's a hybrid program. So completely unexpected that I would go through that trajectory and get, get my doctorate, especially uh, as a student that started out this way. But my passion is really f- to create learning environments that gives students like myself the ability to pursue their educational goals in a way that's flexible around my around there, around my schedule. So I, I know that I would have wished that I would have had some of the flexibility that we're now trying to design at our university, but I did get an excellent education and would love to extend that out to other students. Now, I've heard you tell the chicken soup for the soul story a number of times. I mean, and you could keep telling it and I'll still be amused, but I love mm-hmm. watching people's reactions to it because most of the time they think you're just saying you were the kind of student mm-hmm. who someone would write up. Can you can you actually just go down the next level of detail? How did you find out that you actually <laughs> were written about in a chicken soup for the soul book? Yeah, you're not you're not just using an analogy. You actually were. How did you discover that? Okay, I don't normally read Chicken Soup for the Soul. That's not, <laughs> I, I, it's not a go-to, necessarily. But the, the teacher that actually taught me in 10th grade English actually contacted me, and you'll know why here in a second, contacted me and said, hey, I'm about to put this story. Is it all right if I use your name? Didn't use my last name, but used my first name. She called me up, and I said, oh, yeah, sure, I would love it. And basically the gist of the story is, is that I was the type of student that would throw things and turn clocks backwards and lock her out of the classroom and just do awful things to her as a first-year teacher. And basically, it was a number of years after that, after I left the class, that I started teaching at the high school level. And I just happened to go into the uh, teacher's lounge the first day of school, and I see her at the other side of the other side of the room, and I immediately go, oh my gosh, I got to go say something. So I go, and I go apologize, and I'm, I'm so sorry that I was that type of a student. And she goes, well, you're going to be treated that same way. You're, so you're, 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 going to, you're going to get what you gave back. And she was kind of laughing as a joke and stuff like that. And the main issue is she coming into teaching didn't have any experience at all and was a really good student. Mm-hmm. Myself coming into the class, I was a really bad student and knew every single way to cheat, get around the system, work the loopholes. So I would just basically in and told my students that. And then I didn't have any disciplinary issues or anything like that. So it's definitely a real story. I was hit to go from a 0.67 in grade point average in my senior year of high school to A's and all of my undergraduate and graduate work is, that's ridiculous. But I'm passionate about what I do. I think that's why, why I'm getting, I got good grades and was able to excel at what I did. Your emphasis on really trying to cultivate and equip students to be lifelong learners, I think sometimes when someone might read that, it could not be understood the depth of which you have a commitment around that. And I wonder if you would talk about just, well, let's go back to these four-hour classes. You know, <laughs> What was that experience like for you? What were some of the frustrations? And how does that contradict this idea of trying to cultivate more of a lifelong learning approach to life? I think that's my experience with those four-hour classes. Of course, I got a lot out of it, and it really was transformative. But at the same time, probably two hours into it, an hour and a half into it, it was it was hard for me to concentrate just like any of the other students. And it was kind of focused on the classroom. Packing those hours in like that was kind of focused on the classroom giving me all the learning that I needed, as opposed to preparing me and setting me up to be a self-directed learner. 
kind of has pushed me into my research passion and things like that about trying to train a student in such a way. And then in, in myself, in that case, I wish a professor had trained me to be a critical thinker. And I think it happened through my educational process, but I would like to set people up so they're critical thinkers, that they're learning, that they're knowing how to find that information that they're, uh, they're wondering about themselves so that the classroom becomes more of a conversation and a kind of practicing of that and a sharing of those learned experiences outside the classroom. I think that's kind of, as a, as a comparison, is I would rather have that time and even be a shorter time than four hours, but be dedicated to, okay, what did you learn this week? separate than the, the professor. What did you, where do you learn? And I would love to apply that to my own life. And we're learning together as colleagues, even though they are the professor and I am the student in this particular case. And if the, if I'm the professor and they're the student, I want to learn alongside them. We're about to transition just in case anyone's having trouble following. I say sarcastically, we're about to transition into the whole reason you and I are having this conversation today. But I'd like to just do a little setup on this first. And I'm going to tell a quick story that two times in my life, I have looked like on the outside, like I was the best real estate timing person that ever existed and bought a property and saw it more than triple in value, et cetera. I mean, most of us here in the United States are familiar with this housing (laughs) market and then the crash that we had. And if you looked at on paper, you would just think I was absolutely well, I think there, there's, Enron, there's an Enron documentary, The Smartest Guys in the Room. I might be one of the smartest gals in the room. <laughs> of course, I was not. It was all accidental timing. But when I think about the topic of your research and the part of our conversation we're about to enter into, David, you got some serious timing going on here. So <laughs> would you talk about just timing? What are we faced with right now as we're addressing this pandemic trying to plan for what's next during what's still very much a crisis. Talk me through some of what you notice is emerging in this crisis and getting amplified that if you had known that this was going to happen, you couldn't have planned your dissertation research any better. Most definitely. I think a lot of institutions are trying to figure out how to bring their traditional program in the majority of instances, how to bring their traditional program online and try to go, okay, how can we how we gonna, can we do what we do in the classroom? And sometimes we can just, they're trying to force all the hours, all the face-to-face time into the online environment. And I'm thinking for myself, okay, why don't you just combine it? We've had, I mean, of course, hybrid or blended learning has been around for a while. But if we're able to give choices to students and we build classes with that in mind, if we come up against the, this, like this pandemic where we don't know in the future in the fall, if we're going to have seat time, or we're going to have this face-to-face time, maybe we may have some, maybe we have a lot. We don't have any idea about that. So I'm thinking, why don't we just take the best of both worlds and design courses in such a way that fulfill both purposes in the exact same class, rather than creating a bunch of online classes just in case something happens. Something is going to happen. So whether that's a student getting sick, getting sick even beyond this pandemic, getting sick or athletics or people going on trips or skipping school around Thanksgiving or things like that. If you design it in such a way, it will give the ability for the professor and the student to adapt to the environment as opposed to scramble and try to create those alternative. Don't create it as alternative, create it as the design. 
I was listening to a podcast this morning, and it was talking about that we're just not very good, both as human beings, and he was also specifically talking about the media of which he is part. So he was criticizing himself, looking at his own media empire and analyzing how well they've succeeded and failed at addressing the news around the pandemic. But he was saying we just have to educate ourselves and get better about reading news and generating news around probabilities. Mm-hmm. And he gave the example of that, you know, when he looks back at the coverage of the 2016 election here in the United States, that they knew that there was a 30% probability that Donald Trump would become president, but they acted like, therefore, there was a 0% probability that he would become president and that we just tend to do that. And I'm being clumsy with my words because this is, I mean, he said it so much more eloquently than I just did, but I really, I want to echo what you just said that everything you've taught me about high flex learning, and you know I just resisted parts of it because <laughs> I feel like you have to just wrestle through some of these things to, you know, I've been teaching in higher education for over 15 years now. And so some of the ways I've done things, you know, I'm just try- you have to be able to integrate new ideas. And, and this is a pretty radical one from my perspective. But then like kind of once you get it, I'm like, well, of course this makes sense because we can, speaking of probabilities, <laughs> I feel like it's got to be close to 100% that something's not going to go like we planned it in the fall. Exactly. And it might be something that doesn't go at the institutional level. I think there's a really high probability of that from all the reading and everything I'm I'm taking in. If I'm wrong about that, or I think you can even be right, but just like that 30% I was referring to, oh, it didn't turn into fruition. There was an 80% likelihood, but actually it didn't come to fruition. But down at the student level, isn't there a 100% probability that like, or 97.5 that at the student level during normal times, let alone during the time we're facing now. So in terms of what is emerging both out of your research and your practice and what you're advocating is really being able to look at instead of taking what happened in a classroom and just bring it on over. And this gets talked a lot about, like you said, with hybrid learning. So I mean, I've been hearing that for a long time, just because you, you know, may have lectured for 45 minutes or whatever, don't do a 45 minute video and think that you've nailed it or whatever, you know, that that's, that's been coming up for a long time. But the element that hasn't been coming up is really this radical flexibility. So talk a little bit about if I were in your class, David, I'm taking a class with you and it's a high flex class. Let's take eight weeks just as a range and tell me a little bit about what kind of experience I would have as your student in, term, in terms of high flex learning specifically. <laughs> yeah, yeah, most definitely. When, when you come into the classroom, let's say specifically in, in a online or a hybrid course, a lot of your content is arranged within a learning management system. Ours happens to be Canvas. You would look in that learning management system and three quarters of the class is done by every type of student, meaning both online and on ground, whatever type of student you are, you see that. But then you have a maybe fourth assignment in this particular example that's created to be an alternative or an equivalent learning experience for those students who cannot make it into the campus. So you have that particular assignment that's worth a certain number of points that meet the exact same learning objectives in the online environment as they do in the face-to-face environment. So you're, say, a professor uh, such as myself would be in the class teaching and, and going toward these particular learning objectives. And then it would look could potentially look completely different, but meeting the exact same type of learning objectives 
whether it be a, a written assignment or a video assignment or whatever the case may be, but you're, you're reaching the same learning outcomes and both types of students are getting excellent education at the same time, as opposed to, okay, if you don't get the face-to-face, -face, then you get the consolation prize of the online. It's not a consolation prize. It's both of them are excellent ways to reach the exact same learning objectives. So it gives students the opportunity if from week to week, they, for the most radical extension of this principle, a student could, if you designed your courses in, in this such a way, you could, every single week, a student could decide, I want to go online or I want to go on ground. And they could go back and forth. They could potentially be 100% online and never go to on ground. But them just knowing they have the ability to choose increases their satisfaction, increases their performance. And that's basically what it would look like to the student. But you could even also give a class like that in such a way that the professor has the power where they go, you know what, this week is online. This week is online. They can choose according to the circumstances of the school. So the structure of a high flex course gives both the professor and the student the ability to be radically flexible, like you said. I have been experimenting with, <laughs> there needs to be a high flex learning, but you're not quite doing it right. I need, I need like a, I need a dipping my toe, but not quite. I've been, I've been experimenting with it and I feel like I've had a number of failures with it, but I see so much of the promise that I want to persist. So I just want to mention some of the failures that I've had just so people don't think this is like super easy that to do, you know, snap your fingers and you're done. I would say it is up there, if not at the top of the most difficult kind of course experience you could design, especially if you don't have good experience with both formative and summative kinds of assessments, or in my case, if you're not, I, I had those kinds of things, but I, I just didn't have the organizational system. So in fact, even still today, I still don't, David. So we've got, I, I did finally get convinced by you that I should use the attendance feature that's inside of our learning management system, which for people's reference is Canvas. It's not a good attendance tool because I've become so reliant on a mobile app called Attendance 2 that was designed so well. This guy is phenomenal. And it's just so customizable and it's also built in like where I can use it with Dropbox and I can put their photos in there and a CSV file and all of it comes across and I've got a random feature. So it's just that he's designed it so well to be the best attendance tool, by the way, for in-person classes. We'll get to that in a moment. But what I was really missing in terms of that is that I was always perfectly willing to tell students like, hey, you know, if you want to know what you have in your attendance, just, you know, let me know. I'll be happy to email. And it has a really cool email feature that will send them exactly the dates that they've been there and what they've missed and all that. But I was really relying on a student to know when they needed the help to have that information. I mean, it just wasn't integrated in with their grade until the very end of the semester, at which point it's too late to do anything about it. So you really helped me around attendance, but I still was clumsy with it. So the idea that you just mentioned, high flex learning, if you it, right now in my class, if you come to class, then you get, you know, marked present. And I do have a lot of interaction and formative assessment. It is not lecture. But then I'm making it up as I go, if you don't come to class and I just, it's clumsy. I'm marking them absent just so that it's a record. But then I tell them, okay, if you email me, then I'll take that thing and I'll put it in. It's just, it's clumsy. 
So I'd say you need a little bit better organization around attendance and talk a little bit about, you know, what does a person need to do to really organize it so it isn't so hard? You know, because once it's set up, it's beautiful. But in terms of those kinds of things like attendance and other things in terms of navigating this flexibility that the student could not come or they could come. Yeah. The thing that you would start with as a professor when you're building a class, hopefully we all are doing this, is you would start with learning objectives and you would mention those out. And sometimes we think the learning objectives are every single sub point within a textbook. We look at the table of contents and we say, oh, those are learning objectives. But we should have eight, 10, whatever the number is at the beginning of the class. I want them to leave this class with these learning objectives. Have always those at, at front of mind at the beginning of the class announce what those the things are either you can do it in video and in written form so a lot of unique things about HyFlex is that you want to put it in writing you want to put it in video you want to give it to them a bunch of different ways in this case name what your learning objectives are every time you give them an assignment and then specifically within canvas i would recommend within those to be within modules and to minimize things that lead to confusion for the student but to remind them of what they're going to learn learning objectives and why they're learning in the first place, which would help with motivation. And then you go, okay, what would I do to reach this learning objective in the classroom? Think about it, do a lesson plan. Okay, what would I do in the online environment? And just create them both at the same time, and then attendance and engagement in the classroom equals attendance. Engagement in the online classroom would be whatever you have designed as read this, watch this, and assess this. So quiz, writing, video, you give them as many opportunities and and as much flexibility within the type of assignment that they're turning in, as well as the flexibility to attend in different ways. Now, you talked about in the classroom, and I mean, it makes perfect sense. So a lot of us are accustomed to what would that experience look like in a classroom. I do want to mention that there is this misnomer that if I then hold a class on a web conferencing tool, that I'm out of the classroom. But like, okay, then, this, so I'm in the classroom, what would I do there? And then I'm in the classroom, just just happens to be online, what do I do there? Those are really equivalent to one another with the exception being that people don't quite all have the tools down for what, you know, how do I address, um, we were just talking about Zoom bombing, like how do I get someone out of that or how do I set up a password for this? But like, there really are a lot more similarities between those two things than the other. And one of, I know our fears, David, is that people say, well, this is just not working. This is just not working. This web conferencing tool, I'm not even going to say the name of it. That, yeah, yeah. If, mm-hmm. Just pick one, pick one, yeah. pick one that you're using. It's really, and it's like, well, you're making the assumption that what you were doing in the classroom was working great from a learning experience to begin with. So that's a real thing that w- I know you and I are seeing happening a lot. So what you're not saying is that, oh, if I was in person, then that's like part of HyFlex. And then if I wasn't in person, then we'd meet on this web conference. And no, you're actually talking about <laughs> something else altogether. So talk us through that. Help us understand a little bit more about where we need to go with these comparisons and distinguishing between what would normally happen in a classroom or in a web conferencing thing and what gets added in with HyFlex Learning. And any examples that you have too would be great. For sure. I would probably go back to every type of professor, every type of course needs to be reevaluated toward learning outcomes so that you don't just put bad teaching online in this particular case. 
you go, okay, there could be a point where you're reevaluating these things and you determine, because in general, this type of model works like a flipped learning model where you do a lot of the theory outside of the classroom uh, and you're doing some assessment, you're doing reading and you're watching and things like that. And you're doing a discussion and application and practice within the classroom. A lot of times within a traditional setting, what's happening inside the classroom is lecture, which is theory. So I would recommend that all professors reassess and try to figure out, do I need to just pigeonhole all of this stuff? Since I have, I have so many class sessions during this, if it's an eight week or a 16 week session, I just need to fill all that time. And it's not about learning objectives. I would even re- reassess and try to figure out if this is specifically applicable as we go into fall, or we may have to reduce time in the classroom to go, what do I need to do in the classroom where I believe that this is best done face-to-face? And of course, that of course could be biased. Everything can be done best face-to-face. But you go, okay, think in general, theory outside of classroom, practice and application inside the classroom, and then you kind of cycle back and forth and refer back to the other uh, types of learning. So I would just have a professor and myself just reassess what those things are, potentially reduce their seat time, which would make it more of a hybrid than it would a traditional face-to-face class, and then do what's best online, which in, in some, of the inc- some of the examples that you're giving, there are some students that will shine in the online environment as opposed to shine in that face-to-face environment. So you're having other students come alive. A lot of the testimony that I'm hearing now most recently is, oh my gosh, I've never heard from the student at all. And now they're sharing in the online environment, whether it be Zoom synchronously or whether it be like a discussion forum asynchronously, it gives every student the ability to thrive within that environment. And of course, the preference may be, I would much rather be face-to-face, but preference doesn't equal reality because reality is I work full time or I have a family or those kind of things. So if we design it with as the, we maximize the time we have in the seat, but we don't maximize the time just to maximize the time because we think this is the right thing to do. And then if we do that, then the flexibility increases just for the fact that you have less times that you have to meet. There's less times that something in, something in life of the student or the professor can happen if you reduce that time. And then they have the flexibility. Well, that happened during the time that the class is meeting. Now I can just come back and look at this and go, I'm going to watch this hopefully short video if you recorded something in the classroom that is applicable to the online environment, relatively short so they can have a good attention span and engage with that and engage in a different way, but not a subpar way. So it's equivalent as opposed to a replacement or alternative. Before we go on to the recommendation segment, I did want to ask you, you know, like probably the most important thing about having written a dissertation <laughs> on uh, something like high flex learning. What were your findings? What can we inf- uh, definitively prove? I'm kidding. What were your findings around high flex learning? Does it work? Does it not work? I realized it's more nuanced than that. Yeah, most definitely. Basically, the study that I did compared traditional courses that are 16 weeks long in a traditional setting with undergraduate students to five-week classes that were high-flex classes. They had this choice from week to week to go online or on ground. Some of the students were online, meaning that they were out of state and they could have never come on ground, but some of them were in the area and they came when they could. Sometimes they were sick, sometimes they had to work, those kind of things. So what I did is I tested through survey data, through performance data, meaning the final grade, was able to pull those and, and pull them all together and, and study both satisfaction and performance. 
And what was found is in satisfaction, actually in performance, there was no statistically significant difference between the modality. It was crazy to think there's no difference. Same learning objectives done differently. And some, in most cases, there were different professors. So I know those kind of shortcomings, those things we could study more in the future. But when compared, it was basically the same grades when you average the grades. But in the area of satisfaction, there was two areas specifically that HyFlex rose to the top which actually we found significant findings in that students wanted across the board an easy to understand structure and now to make sure that they can navigate through the course in such a way, which was in general, more structured courses happen to land in the online environment or a high flex environment than traditional, but then also expectations, very clear expectations. Sometimes the, the professors can put those expectations within the syllabi, but Sometimes they change those assignments and they don't change the syllabi and then it's very, like they contradict one another and things like that. But if you build all that specific, all those specific expectations and structure into the learning management system, it will bring more satisfaction and that at least for this specific sample and this specific uh, institution, satisfaction was up for those specific reasons in the area of HyFlex. And I would I'd love to do more study in the future uh, as far as length of course and, and things like that. But I think in general, those things could be taken into account and improve traditional classes. This doesn't have to be a high flex class. You can take, you know what? I'm going to be very detailed. I want 12 point font. I want APA format. I want this many pages. I want this many words. Like give all the expectations so that when they give it to you, you go, why didn't they do this? And it goes, because you didn't ask for it. I wanted to read your mind. So that's basically in like a very short synopsis of, of the findings but it then kind of pushes me to future research. We want to see what, as far as the ages are concerned, so we're talking about the type of learner, the age of learner. We want to be able to research those students to see if age specifically, even in just different age brackets, when they become more self-directed and then what type of pedagogy kind of helps to create that self-directed learner. And in HyFlex, you want to like slow into it. We're going to make that transition between pedagogy and andragogy. And of course, there's andragogy that goes back into high school, and of course, but at the same time, there's pedagogy that, that kind of comes into the, the college undergraduate environment. But you want to figure out a way to bring the student into andragogy and that self-directed learning so they can become that type of learner. They go outside the class and then they have their own personal knowledge management where they're going, I'm passionate about this. I've found what I'm passionate about. I want to find out more about this. And it's not for the fact that I just have to put this back on a test. I have to write a paper about it because I'm really excited about that. And the only way they can discover that is through this type of a process. And they're not going to discover it if they're just, please listen to me for 45 minutes a day and then give me the information back on a test. And it's the exact same thing that's in a textbook. I'm not going to be excited about the learning. I don't think any student is really super excited about that. That's not the, that's not the professors are going I told her, remember, that's the best professor on earth. And they, he just spoke the whole time and I never was able to speak and discuss and, and engage. So alongside flexibility comes responsibility, both on the student side, but on the professor side as well as how they create their assessments and create their engagement in such a way that students can become passionate about their learning. I could keep talking to you about this for such a long time. <laughs> they normally tell us to keep episode they the experts, you know them. <laughs> the podcast uh, experts. <laughs> the podcast experts tell us to try to keep our episodes around the commute time, the average commute time in the United States, which is forty minutes. 
At any rate, it is the time where I get to thank today's sponsor. And this is the first time they're sponsoring. I love that most of the time the companies that sponsor teaching and higher ed are just an integral part of my life. And this company definitely is. It is SaneBox. And I know, David, you haven't ever used SaneBox before. I wrote about it in my book, The Productive Online and Offline Professor, as just really one of the key tools for me in managing email. And David, I feel like email, I used to think it was hard to manage email. <laughs> oh, that was child's play. <laughs> that was child's play. So if you think about with regard to email, we need to, the, all the challenges that are there, you need to focus, you get distracted, important emails get buried in there with the stuff that just doesn't matter. You've got all these receipts coming in and you know stuff that you have to save but may not necessarily need to do anything with. You email someone and you want to hear back from them, but it's like cumbersome to track that. All of that gets addressed with SaneBox and it does it just so well. So it creates email boxes for you that sort things. And they have some really cool default ones. Like you would expect, you know, a sane later stuff you don't need to look at right now. There's uh, different folders. Like you can also say, you know, remind me of this in three days, or you can even train it. Like you could create your own thing and say, Hey, you know, automatically sort this out. Or if it sorts into the wrong place, which by the way, it hardly ever does. I hardly, hardly ever have to do this. But if it sorted something into the wrong place, it's, its intelligence wasn't quite intelligent enough. I just drag it either back into my inbox if I want to say never sort this again or into the proper place that it should go. It's really, really a smart tool. And in terms of privacy concerns, it's not reading my email. I set the accounts up within SaneBox, but it's just looking at the subject line. And so it gets smarter and smarter and smarter over time with what subject lines should go where such that when I look in either my work or my podcasting slash personal emails, the stuff that's in my inbox really belongs in my inbox, really belongs there. Oh, by the way, so sometimes if someone gets a message that's like, you've never asked to get this email and it's like, oh, buy this from us. And if you want to unsubscribe, click here. Hopefully the listeners know this. If you click there, Sometimes you're just confirming that you're a real email address and you're about to attract a ton of new spam to come in. So if you don't already know, like if I bought something from a company and three minutes later I get an email from them, oh, you're on our newsletter now. I know I can click unsubscribe there and they're going to follow the anti-spam laws. But if it's a company I've never heard of before, you can drag that into what they call the sane black hole and it doesn't notify them that you've done that, but you never see that again. Because occasionally I'll get these ones where I'm like, I don't know how I got on your email, but I never want to see it again. It's amazing. So SaneBox is today's sponsor. I just want to thank them for joining Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm glad to be able to spread the word about SaneBox. And there'll be a link in the show notes for you to go and take advantage of a special deal from SaneBox. And I just want to thank them again for sponsoring. And now, David, we get to go on to the recommendations segment. And I know that you'll appreciate this one. This one's dedicated to you. Uh, One of the things they laugh about us at Vanguard is that we'll just, if we're meeting in the Institute for Faculty Development, we just pop up and a lot of us have Apple Watch. (laughs) So when it tells us the hours, we pop up and we just randomly start stretching in the middle of a meeting. It's not weird for us. Like everyone's just, you shouldn't sit that long. Shouldn't sit that long. So there are some How to Ease Your Quarantine Aches and Pains by Daniel Kosecki. And it was on Medium. And it just, oh, I'm like, this is exactly what I need because I'm sitting too much. 
and the stretching is really important. And so that is my recommendation for today. I saved my other two for a later episode because I'm excited to hear what David has to recommend today. Excellent. So I have about 13 recommendations. But I totally do too. <laughs> so I will, I will do three. And the only reason I'm doing three is because they're all interconnected. So first one would be Innovators DNA by Jeffrey Dyer, Clayton Christensen, and Hal Gregerson. That was kind of beginning my foray into disruptive innovation and studying that, which then led into the jobs to be done theory, uh, which is basically customers in general hire companies to fulfill a certain job that they're trying to do. So they're going to education, they're doing it because they're going to college because their parents want them to do it, because they want to get a better job, whatever the case may be. And to kind of combine disruptive innovation and jobs to be done kind of helps specifically if we're talking about higher education people to set themselves apart. That brings me to the second one is Competing Against Luck, by also by Clayton Christensen. Um, and it's also by Taddy Hall, Karen Dillon, and David Duncan. And that's a, a book that it doesn't just do higher ed, doesn't focus on higher ed only, but a lot of different industries about how to set yourself apart using jobs to be done in disruptive innovation theory, where you iterate and you change and you transform and you improve rather than just sitting and staying the same, trying to get up ahead of the curve. And that comes with the third book. All of these are connected to the Christensen Institute. You'll see some of my bias here, but it's called Choosing College by Michael Horn and Bob Moesta. And it specifically hones in on college. And that book is for parents, for students, and for administrators of schools to be able to figure out how do I apply jobs to be done in disruptive innovation to my institution and then specifically for students trying to figure out what is my job going into getting this degree, not just going to get a degree just for the heck of it, but knowing why before you enter. So it's a great book for parents, students, uh, and for administrators, especially in this time where we're going to need to set ourselves apart uh, as higher ed institutions because there's a lot of institutions now just scrambling and throwing all their stuff online. You want to have excellent education as opposed to just do it as a, like what we talked about earlier as a consolation prize. David, I'm so glad to get to work with you. I learn so much from you all the time, pretty much every conversation. So as someone who's a committed lifelong learner, I'm just so grateful for that and just grateful for your servant's heart and how well you're serving our faculty, which ultimately serves our students. And it's just a joy to get to collaborate with you and wrestle with these ideas together. I was going to say fight. We don't fight. We 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 wrestle with ideas. We, and, and I think it's just the best, really healthy communication. And we have that throughout our department. And a big part of that is just the way that you come in you bring your expertise, but you're also humble and we're always learning. I just love that about you. And I'm so glad to have you as a part of the team. Well, thank you. I'm excited to be a part of it. I'm excited to have this conversation and hopefully help it. I love helping people and helping our faculty. It's a great, it's like my passion and my job at the same time. So isn't that the best? Absolutely. Yep. Thanks once again to Dr. Dr. David Rose. <laughs> that, that really comes off the tongue nicely. In case you didn't get this reference, he's a newly, a newly doctored doctor. So it's fun to get to celebrate with him. And as of this recording, we'll be celebrating actually virtually because we won't be doing that in person. But there's cake, I think, but it doesn't have any calories in it. So <laughs> this is the best kind of cake you could ever hope for. So thanks to all of you for listening to this episode. I hope you'll go check out the show notes and go check out about SaneBox too. I think it'll be a great tool to contribute just to easing a little bit of the load around email. It's really an integral tool for me. And if you'd like to go to the show notes, they're at teachinginhighered.com slash 309. And check out David's bio there too and the links to 
all the resources that we talked about. See you next time on Teaching in Higher Ed.